Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today I'm thrilled to share our guest with you, Sean Haynes. Sean started out supporting disabled children and adults in multiple social and professional contexts early in his career. From there, he joined the United States Army, where he became a criminal intelligence analyst. After leaving the Army, he graduated from the University of Chicago School of Law and became a professional attorney, which is his current career. Along the way, he became fluent in five languages. I think there's a lot we can learn about communicating from somebody who has worked in all of those contexts and speaks five languages. His diverse career path and all of his experiences have helped him develop a very uncommon level of empathy and understanding for what other people are experiencing. And he does a masterful job communicating with people and identifying with a wide range of people in a lot of very unexpected circumstances. So I'm really, really excited to share Sean's experience and insight with you today. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors. Of course, we have Humantel. Please check out humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E-2-5, for a 25% discount on the best industry-leaning online training available to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling in the context of the situation as their emotions change. Their training is the very best. I've taken it. I'm happy to vouch for it. I highly recommend that you check it out. Also, we have Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Please check out ei-magazine.com for their always updating library of content, including podcast interviews, videos, articles, events. They're constantly adding to their canon of great, great, great information over there at Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Please check them out. And of course, please check out the International Association of Interviews. CertifiedInterviewer.com. It is the number one resource for professional interviewers who are looking to join an organization, to learn from an organization that is focused on developing elite interviewers that can conduct morally, legally, and ethically successful interviews in a wide range of contexts. So thank you to all of our sponsors. And without further ado, Mr. Sean Haynes. Hey, Sean, it's great to see you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, again, with your experience, everything that you've been through and, and some of, the, some of the, the skills that you've developed, which, which we're going to talk about coming into, I'm really excited for this conversation. And to, to help the audience kind of acclimate to our conversation, we do know each other a bit. That's not going to be a secret to anybody and I don't remember the actual first time I met you, but I remember the first time I thought to myself, wait a minute, this dude is different. And where did he come from? So, so we trained jujitsu together and we're hobbyists. So let's not confuse us with any professional jujitsu players, but we trained jujitsu together and you'd been at our academy for a little while. And there was a visiting black belt from Brazil who came in and was teaching a class for us one night. If I recall right, she had like world championships or something coming up. So she was getting, she was traveling and getting extra rounds and extra practice. And, and she came in to teach us. And so she's sitting in the, in the middle of the room, walking us through her technique. And clearly Portuguese is her first and foremost language. And she can speak a little bit of English. And she's trying to translate the techniques that make perfect sense to her as a black belt in Portuguese to the rest of us who were sitting around in the room and, and are lucky to speak English. And at one point, she kind of hesitated. 
And when she hesitated, you slide yourself up next to her and immediately start speaking fluent Portuguese and translating everything she's saying to the whole group. And honestly, man, if an alien spaceship landed and told me, get in, I'm taking you to Ted Williams' house, I would have been less surprised than I was <laughs> when you scooted up and started translating perfect Portuguese. So come to find out, you've had this really interesting background, you've done lots of different things, you speak a handful of different languages. And for me, somebody who is fascinated with communication and with making unexpected connections with people to create results that cause other people to go, I didn't see that coming. Like, mm -hmm. You hit the bullseye on that, man. <laughs> but before we get into talking about all of the languages that you speak, which I do think is fascinating and worth considering, if I recall correctly, your career started in social work. That's right. Yeah, Mike. I started actually in social work when I was about 14 years old, like my oh, wow. high school my high school jobs, I, mean, I had a few of them, but but uh, one of the first ones was in a social work capacity. And, and, you know, throughout my career in social work, which spanned about 11 years. Now, more than that, if I started when I was 14, spanned more like 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, uh, I was working with adults with developmental disabilities. And so mm -hmm. kind of my first job was helping a few folks get their driver's license by helping them prepare for the um, kind of the written portion, not, not the, not the road test for a driver's license, but passing the written portion of uh, the driver's license exam. And then I did some job coaching, helping them um, on their jobs. And, and uh, I got into it because my mom did that for a living. And, you know, I was a high school kid looking to make some extra income and, you know, willing to do just about anything. And so there was kind of that natural in there for me, but yeah, I found yeah. that I really, really enjoyed kind of the helping people aspect. So um, it, it just was a really good fit for me. And, and so, you know, once I graduated high school, I, I was not, uh, I almost failed out of high school, Mike. So I was not college ready at that point. So I continued in social work for, you know, a number of years afterwards um, and actually did social work full time when I went to college. So um, yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. Um, and, and just found that it, it, you know, was a natural match for my personality. That's fantastic. So I've got a little bit of a similar background. The high school that I ended up graduating from had the students with disabilities in the mainstream classrooms with us. And so when I transferred to that high school, one of them was like the assistant on the football team. So I met him before school started. And then when school started, I met some of the support staff that were in with us. We're both from New England. So I was in New Hampshire and had some folks from the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire involved with our high school. And I got involved with them. And same for me, some of my, well, my very first job was bagging groceries in case anybody really cares. But after that, uh, started working as a, camp counselor in direct support of a child with down syndrome mm -hmm. and then started working with uh, children and adults with developmental disabilities sounds like similar things i mean obviously with the kids it was more in the school educational support uh but with the adults um often just guiding them through things that you and i would take for granted you know, going to the store and getting a job and going out to lunch and in a lot of those um occupational yeah, that, that, that we would work with them on. So you did it for longer than I did I'll, to give credit where credit is due. Um, I, I bounced around a little bit quicker with, with my career, it sounds like. But for me, 
I can look back on certain relationships and certain conversations and certain situations that I went through with some of those kids and adults that long term, although, of course, I didn't realize it at the time as a kid in my teens and 20s, really had a big impact on my life and how I communicate with people and, and how I view people. So I'm curious, to the best of your recollection, what are, what is one of the most impactful experiences you had supporting somebody in those roles? You know, it's an interesting question because there were a lot of them, Mike. There really were. And and it's a job where, you know, for me, the financial rewards were very uh, borderline non-existent, right? But there were rewards in other ways. And it really was making an impact on, on other people's lives. Because you're talking about people who were, you know, and I was working primarily with adults. So we're talking okay. people in their 30s all the way through their mid-60s, yes. okay? And so they had grown up in a different era. I think, I think um, you know, kids with, with developments, developmental disabilities today are really fortunate uh, compared to those who came up through the system you yes. know, decades ago. It's just, you know, as a society, we just think about things in a different way than we used to. But I was working with a lot of people who, who you might say were institutionalized and had just, sure. you know, had very little support from their families and had gone through institutions, which just kind of chew you up and spit you out. And at the very best kind of leave you in a corner to, 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 you know, to your own devices, right? Because the alternatives were often, you know, less pleasant than being left alone. So the opportunity to really play, a, it was challenging. I, don't get me wrong. It was really challenging, but the opportunity to play a role in helping people's, you know, I used to say, people say, what do you do for work? And, and you know, on a day-to-day basis, and really the, the fundamental thing that I saw myself as doing was helping people increase their quality of life by yes. giving them support from somebody who cared, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember one day there was this one woman, you know, but when I started off as an adult doing social work, I worked at a place that was called the drop-in center. So it was in Portland, Maine. And it was just this place where people could come, you know, safe place in the community where people could come eat lunch, you know, work on projects, play some pool, you know, just, just chill with their friends um, without kind of fear of being taken advantage of or whatever. And there was this one woman who came in every day and she was really hot and cold. And you could almost set your watch by it. Like one day she would be my best friend. And the next day she would be like swearing at me and told me to get away from her. And I just remember one day I went in and she approached me and she like, I, she was in her mid sixties. Right. And she approached me and she said, I just want to thank you because you've brought a lot of joy into my life. And that for me was just like, wow, man, like it's just not something you expect to hear. And I was 18, 19 years old at the time. And it it made me think like, what is it? What is it that's had that kind of impact? And and it really was just listening, you know, listening to what she really wanted and needed and had to say, whether it be like helping her accomplish something concrete or just being someone that she could talk about her problems with. And so that really got me to thinking about how important it was, um, you know, for people who largely hadn't been heard to to finally be heard, you know, and and so for me that was huge. It was kind of like a, a, a I don't know if I'd want to say a turning point, but certainly a milestone, especially in my early career, on how important it is to not just hear but to listen to what people have to say. And and you know that that brings up to my mind a story about this other guy that I worked with named Fred who was deaf, um, 
And he had been living in this, you know, the main institution in the state of Maine, which was called Pineland. And you, you know, I, I don't know how, how long Pineland was open, 60, 70 years. I, I couldn't tell you, but they closed it in the 90s, in the early to mid-90s, as part of this deinstitutionalization effort in Maine. And Fred was a big guy. And like I said, he he was deaf. And he was he was known as the axe murderer of Pineland, right? Because there had been some incident with his family when he was a kid where I think the story was he had been chopping wood because they had a wood stove and he was outside chopping wood and he came in and he found his mom like in a compromising situation with the neighbor guy. So Fred was really angry, but he happened to have an ax in his hand and he didn't like chop anybody up or anything like that. But, you know, he got angry and he got the cops called on him, this whole thing. So he had this reputation as being really violent and I remember when we went to take him from the institution to bring him to live in one of our supported programs, we were told Fred is completely unable to communicate. He knows rudimentary sign language, but can't read or write, you know. And so, you know, lots of luck to you guys, because this, this dude is basically a hopeless case, right? And so we went in and, you know, the director, the, the clinical director of my agency at that time also knew kind of limited sign and said hi and introduced herself. And Fred grabbed her by the hand and took her over to a typewriter and illiterate Fred typed, please get me out of here on the typewriter. So think about that, Mike, like he was fully capable of communicating, not only capable of communicating, but fully literate, but had been living in a situation for years where that wasn't acknowledged by anybody, right? And so imagine, you know, and he had this reputation for violence, right? How violent would you be if you were living in a situation where nobody acknowledged like your skills or your ability to, to communicate with the outside world? So um, that, I mean, it's an extreme example, right? Because you don't run across too many people in your day-to-day life who think you're incapable of, you know, human communication, but it also just kind of like drew a line under the fact that it's so important to listen and be listened to. Those are, yeah. I mean, thanks for making me angry. 10 minutes of this conversation, <laughs> Sorry, man. But... But, no, those are great stories. And especially the first one about the woman, you know, how often do we not realize the seconds that matter to other people, you know, for the time that I spend with clients, you know, I'm not asking them to spend more time with people. They don't have it. I get it. But how do you make that time feel more impactful? In a lot of ways, it's just slowing it down because what feels like another step in our day could be the moment that somebody else needs in theirs. And none of us have time, but we can add 10 seconds here, 15 seconds here, 30 seconds there. It doesn't make a difference over the the course of the scope of our day. So that's super important. And then, yeah, yeah. Talk about with Fred's story, how expectations impact what the effort we put in, how we communicate, but also the stories that people are told. So for me, not knowing anything about that story, although unfortunately haven't been involved with eerily similar folks down in New Hampshire, uh, after the, the Laconia state school of all dreadful places was finally closed. Um, but in that story, Think about like the telephone game, right? So he walks in with the ax, gets angry. People are scared because there's a dude with an ax. They call the cops. Okay, fine. But now how many times did that story get retold? 
So yeah. instead of being an angry son that just walked in from chopping wood, he's now the axe murderer of Pineville or, or Pineland, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and then people running their expectations based off of that. Well, mm -hmm. if this guy's an axe murderer, he must be violent. If he can't communicate, we'll just leave him alone. And the whole time it was, yeah, just the expectations we carry into our conversations, the view that we bring in, the goals that we take and the ability to get the best out of other people is in front of us all the time. We just have to want it and we have to not fall prey to the news headline. Like what's the yeah. one thing we've heard about somebody and then all the assumptions that we make after that. Yeah, it's so important to try. I mean, you can't help but have it like color a little bit. I think it's hard to completely shut that out, right? Because we all have these kind of these these um I don't know what you'd say. Um I mean, we have shorthand ways to understand the world that that makes sure. it so you don't have to like completely analyze each new situation. So but but it's important to be conscious of that, right? Like what are the things that might prejudice my interaction with this person who I don't really know? And, and you know, I feel like in my day-to-day -day life, I have a responsibility to temper that as much as I can and keep an open mind um, because I've never like, and you know, if it turns out that, you know, the reputation is deserved, but, but you just have to try to make that determination for yourself rather than let someone else make it for you, right? And when you do that, you are often surprised and that opens up some of the best human interactions that, that I've experienced when you can kind of like overcome those assumptions that you might otherwise have based on the information you've been given and kind of dig a little bit deeper and, and go in with as little prejudice as possible. And you, you often find that, you know, the story you've been told is incomplete, if not complete, um, you know, fabric. Yeah. Yeah, it's incomplete at best. At yes. best, it's incomplete. No, I think it was maybe last summer, I was hanging out with a couple of guys that, that you and I both know that come from different backgrounds, and we were in town. And uh, a gentleman went by us in a wheelchair, and he's physically and developmentally disabled. And one of the guys that I was with looked at him and said, oh, called him by name. I know him. I've helped get his groceries. I went into his apartment. I couldn't believe the situation. I felt so bad for him. I would like to try to help him anytime I can. And the other guy said, well, he's a problem. He's always causing problems, problems in the neighborhood, problems. with." And I'm standing there, like, the two perspectives being juxtaposed mm -hmm. to me was just this wonderful, and not at the expense of the poor gentleman who went by in the wheelchair, but this like social science experiment where one person comes into the conversation with one worldview, another person comes into the conversation with an entirely different worldview, and they're talking about the same exact person. But to your point, based not even on their individual experiences, in one case it was, but based on stories that they had heard and things that people had told them, they're making these judgments when, just, how about go have a conversation with somebody? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Even just having the wherewithal to wrap up the point you made to, to say to yourself, I wonder where I might be wrong. I wonder yeah. what I might be missing. Maybe I'm not wrong. Maybe I'm not missing anything, but I will never know if I don't open up the possibility that I could be wrong or that I could be missing something. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, maybe you find out that you were right. That I mean, that happens too. I, I certainly don't mean to say that, you know, every single time if, if you can kind of like fight the preconception that you've been given that you're going to find out that was right. I mean, sometimes it's right. Sometimes it oh. just is, but you know, the willingness to, to make that determination on your own rather than, rather than let, you know, others do it for you um, yeah. is I think the least it's not easy. Right. But I think it's the least we owe each other.
And the fact that it's not easy, I think, is why people don't do it. Because it's easier to feel safe and consistent with what I already think and believe than risk not the external vulnerability, but the internal vulnerability. Yeah. Wrong. So speaking of vulnerability, I, I know a little bit about your background, so I'm cheating here. It sounds like as your social work career went to a close, you took the next logical step. I think most people who start off in a career in social work immediately enlist in the army after because one, one step clearly sets you up for the other. So, so because maybe most people don't do that, I am curious, what motivated you to sign up for Uncle Sam? So it, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. So there was an intermediate step. Um, I left my social work job in Maine to go get a master's degree at the University of New Mexico in Latin American studies. And so I, I don't want to get it completely twisted. I mean, it sounds bad up front, but I, so there's, there's kind of a whole involved story. I thought I had kind of my dream job lined up, fig, realized literally a week and a half before I graduated that I did not. And I was graduating into the economy of 2000, like spring 2009, which was just abysmal, yeah. right? We had just gone through the financial cry, kind of the collapse of the housing market. Um, and the economy was really bad. So, and I had a ton of student loans and my neighbor was at that time, I think he was a first Sergeant in the army He's like, have you considered military service? And I said, oh, I'm 31 years old. I really hadn't considered it at this point in my life, but, but, but I ended up considering it pretty quickly. So I wish I could say that it was kind of like this, you know, feeling of patriotic duty to serve my country that kind of drove me in that way. And it wasn't, but, but I, you know, once I made the decision to enlist um, and ship out to boot camp, that quickly became important to me. Right. And it felt really good because, every, you know, generations of men in my family have served. Right. And I think I may be the only one from my generation. So um, that's kind of how I got there. And then once I was there, uh, you know, I, I kind of jumped into it with both feet um, and, and I really enjoyed my time in the military, but that's, that's how the, the transition happened. But, you know, Mike, I think my time, my time as a social worker has really benefited me all the way down the line, like in the military and, and in you know later steps in my career. It's been really helpful. I have no doubt that it did. And some other time in a different conversation, you can help me understand how a dude from Maine decided to go all the way to New Mexico for, yeah. for school, which is a, a story for another day, I'm sure. Um, but you said you enlisted at 31. Correct. What was it like? Now, I, for everybody that's listening and may not know, I did not serve in the military. Unfortunately, unlike you, Sean, I am the generation that broke the link in the chain. So that's, you know, for me. Um, but I, I, I did not serve my father, grandfather, great grandfather, all did. Putting that aside, what was, so I don't have direct experience. It really is where I was going with that. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like being a 31 year old in boot camp? It was. It was a, it was an interesting experience, and I mean, overall, it was more pros than anything else, right? Like, the one thing is, you know, the one thing that was difficult for me, and I say it was, it wasn't difficult for me once I got there. It's just physically, you're, you know, you're, you're 31 and you're you're out there. I don't want to say competing, but kind of competing with 18, 19, 20 year old kids. Um, so you're at a different phase of your life. 
as a physical performer, you know, so that, so I did a lot of work prior to getting to boot camp because boot camp is hard enough as it is without having like the challenges of not being in shape. Right. So I spent the, you know, four or five months before I shipped out getting myself into shape. So it ended up not to be a huge issue for me, but on the other hand, you're going in with a lot more life experience than somebody who just graduated from high school. Right. So it helped me have perspective on things. Um, uh, I think the whole scenario was less intimidating for me than it was for a lot of people. Like, and and also because I had been in social work and had been, you know, look, there's a side of it that's fantastic, and then there's a side of it where you know, like, you're literally getting physically attacked by by clients sometimes, right? Who and and so getting yelled at by a drill sergeant was like, you know, it's uh, you know, I, I'm going to make it, right? What are you going to do? Make me do push-ups? Like, I, it was it that that part was fine whereas for a lot of people it was a very traumatic experience because they'd never you know they'd never really faced that kind of um that kind of uh i don't know leadership before um but also you know kind of the so you know th- this what i'm about to say had you know both pros and cons right like because in in boot camp, your entire day is accounted for, except for maybe like 45 minutes to an hour in the evening where you have time to go kind of clean up and then write letters or just relax, right? And so that was pretty sacred to us because all day, I mean, you're being told, go here, do this, do that, don't do this, go to this other place. And then to get, to get, as a 31-year-old man, that was tough, right? My time is not my own, you know, the, 90% of my waking hours are not my own. And so we had that little bit of time, but my time very quickly became occupied by a literal line of younger soldiers going out my door, coming in to talk to me about problems they were having. Um, you know, I'm having this problem with my girlfriend back at home and I'm really worried, or, you know, my family doesn't understand why I did this. And I'm, you know, how do I deal with that? Or, I mean, seriously, can you help me write letters to my family or, Drill sergeant yelled at me three times today. I don't know why. Can we talk about it? Like, I became like this kind of ad hoc de facto counselor to to everybody. So I didn't have that like me time in the evening after about week one. I I was like occupied with helping other people with their problems and kind of listening, listening to what what they what they perceived as the problem and trying to help them cook up solutions, right, to make their time easier. And if I hadn't had that social work experience, I might have. Like told people, hey, take take a hike, man. I'm 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 you know I want to write letters to my girlfriend. I want to you know relax and kind of clear my mind. But you know, I took on that role, and it was you know in in the I mean sometimes it was exhausting, right? I've already done a full day of training, um, but you know it's just kind of who I was at that point, uh, and it was it, it was important to me. It says a lot about you. I haven't gotten to know you a little bit. It certainly doesn't surprise me in the least. I'm sure that only added to the mental and emotional exhaustion on top of the physical exhaustion that, that you were already feeling. So when you were playing that role of ad hoc counselor, are there one or two examples that are acceptable to share where, <laughs> where by doing what you've, what you've illustrated repeatedly, listening to somebody at a moment where they needed it, regardless of your convenience, you were able to have an outside impact on their experience? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there were a few, but the one that really sticks out in my mind, right? We had this young guy named 
Cooper. I actually forget his first name, but first names kind of don't matter in the army. They particularly don't matter in boot camp. Um, and Cooper, there were two, there were two, I call them kids because they were really young, Cooper and Palmer. And they both had similar problems. I, I would imagine that there was some kind of ADHD diagnosis to, to be made there. Um, but they just, you know, in the military, it's important to pay attention. It's important to listen. It's important to be quiet and sit still sometimes. Um, and they just had a, they really had a problem with it. Uh, it and they were constantly, you know, military is also big on like group punishment. So if Cooper messed something up, then we were all doing push-ups. And I was like, okay, Cooper messed up. I'm going to do push-ups. I'm not going to be mad at Cooper, you know, but, but a lot of people would. Right. So, you know, you know, he just like was having the difficulty of interacting with the drill sergeants because he couldn't seem to sit still. He couldn't seem to, he couldn't seem to find his way, but he was also starting to have problems with the other soldiers in the platoon because they were tired of getting punished because of Cooper's behavior. Right. And, and Palmer's, but so Cooper came to me one day and he was just like, Haynes, I don't know. Like, you know, I, why, why can't we talk? Why can't, because look, Mike, in, in boot camp, there's a lot of stuff that seems irrational, but it's all really by design, right? Mm -hmm. If, if they tell you to sit still and remain completely silent while you're out on the range doing marksmanship with your rifles, right? At any given time, there's a handful of guys that are with their rifles, you know, out practicing and everybody else is sitting in some bleachers. And it's not like sit there and hang out and chill and talk with your friends. They tell you, be quiet. Don't make a, don't make a noise. Right. And it was so hard for Cooper to understand that with his personality. He's like, I want to make friends. I want to talk to people. I don't. And I would just, and, but they're not, you know, the leadership isn't candid about why they're, why they're doing that. Right. But I kind of intuited and, and part of being older was you got a little more leeway with the drill sergeants and they talk to you like an adult sometimes, like every once in a great while they would, they would acknowledge that you were a human being that had some past experiences. And so I was able to kind of talk to Cooper about why is it, why is it that when we're lined up to go to the chow hall, we're expected to shout at the top of our lungs that we're going into the chow hall. But when we're sitting on the range, we're expected to sit completely silent in the bleachers. And I said, because sometimes Cooper, it's important to make noise. If you're in a firefight, you need to communicate with your teammates, right? And they want, they don't want you to be timid. They want you to, they want you to be, you know, be confident and be, and be, you know, be loud when you're communicating in the midst of that kind of chaos. And so they have us yell our names at the top of our lungs when we go in the chow hall. That's why they do it, Cooper, right? At the same time, if you're like on an ambush, you have to be quiet. You can't be sitting in your, in your covert spot, chit-chatting about, you know, the game last night with the dude you're sitting there with, because that's going to blow your position, right? And that could be extremely dangerous. So they have us practice being silent when we're sitting in the bleachers. And so there's a reason for it. And helping him connect the why of what we were doing, which just seemed like irrational behavior. And that might not have been what the military wanted me doing. But over time, Cooper kind of got with the program because I was helping him. I was listening to what his problems were. His problems, his, his base problem was, I don't understand why we're doing it this way. And he was, a you know, still that rebellious teen stage of his life. He was 18 years old, right? I don't understand. So I'm not getting with the program because nobody's explaining it to me. And helping to kind of gap fill there and say, hey, Cooper, I get it, man. I want to talk to my friends, too. I feel silly when I have to yell, number 45, going into the deep back. You know, it just sounds crazy, right? But there's a reason for it. And helping connect that reason 
I think helped kind of meet Cooper's needs for understanding this, what seemed to be irrational behavior to him. And by the end, I mean, it wasn't just me, like other people stepped up to the plate as well. But by the end, Cooper was kind of a model trainee and, and had really turned the corner. Whereas Palmer never really sought me out for that kind of advice. And he's still like, I think he ended up being, you know, chaptered out of the military because he just never could like kind of curb those tendencies he had. But I think by taking the time with Cooper, understanding what his issues were and helping him understand what the military's needs were kind of bridged a gap between those two things. Good for you, man. And again, anytime I speak with somebody about military experience, it's not experience that I directly have, but that combination of life experience, situational awareness, the ability to listen and connect with somebody on the level that they need in the long run makes a big difference. And people talk about all the time, the importance of understanding the why and aligning your why and all those things, but it's true. Like it's really true. If, if people don't understand why they're supposed to do something, those questions are going to be rattling around in their brain and taking away from their opportunity to learn, apply, follow orders. So making that connection is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too, because I mean, you can get people who are just kind of, who will get with the program, just kind of, that's their natural tendency. But if they kind of don't understand the reason for the program, how much they can actually get with it is, is in my mind is a little bit up for debate. Right. So I I was just happy because I could see what was going on and I can help him and, and some other guys too. But I mean, for me, it really was a matter of kind of listening and by really and by listening, really helping diagnose what the problem with the situation was, right? Um, but I couldn't have done it if I weren't willing to like open my ears up and open my mind up to understand what his struggles were, right? I could just blow him off or I could just give him lip service and just be like, okay, Cooper, you got to be quiet. They say, be quiet, be quiet. What's so hard about that, man? I can sit there for hours on end and not say anything. Why is that so hard for you, right? Um because we're all different, right? We all have different, we all come from different backgrounds. We have different sets of experiences. We have different things that we value, you know, you know, this is important to me. That's not so important. You know, I'm kind of a, you know, we've discussed this a little bit. Um, In some sense, I'm kind of a, I'm a, I'm a people person, but I'm also kind of a lone wolf. So I have no problem being quiet for a long time, right? And living with the thoughts in my mind, but some people it's really difficult for them, right? So acknowledging that we're not all built the same, we're not wired the same, we don't value the same things, we don't have the same needs. Um, acknowledging that and then taking that into account with your interactions with other people, in my experience, really can help produce better outcomes for everyone. For sure. And for me, what what I take from the, what I take from your experience, how awesome is that? Is it's like an evolved problem solving approach. I could just tell them to be quiet. I could just tell them to go away. I could just tell them to get with the program and I'm solving the problem. I'm solving the problem of protecting my time. I'm solving the problem of falling in line with what everybody else is doing. So I'm consistent. I'm not setting myself up for ridicule and -hmm. I'm solving the problem by continuing the cycle of telling him what to do. So that's one way to do it or a more evolved way to do it is to take stock of the totality of the situation understand his situation, understand why he's likely interacting or questioning the way he is, helping him solve his problems. And if we're being completely honest, solving his problem in a way that helps solve your problem. Because if he falls in line, you do less push-ups. And I'm not a big fan of doing push-ups. I'm not going to lie. So there's there's that evolve, like the totality of 
solving your problem or solving the platoon's problem based on how the extra time, how you listen and how you communicate with him. There's a huge lesson in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I could have told him, you know, take a hike, man. Yeah. yeah this is my time. Uh, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been completely unjustified in that. And certainly none of the leadership in our platoon would have had a problem with it. Um, you know, cause I, I was as entitled to my time as anybody else was right. But but that's solving an immediate problem for me, right? That's solving one problem. But, you know, we're all going to still end up doing those extra push-ups because Cooper, you know, not likely to kind of figure it out on his own, right? So, um, you know, not I, I'm not trying to, like, hold myself up as a shining example of somebody who tried to make a difference. But, um, you know, looking at the totality of the issue and really solving the overall problem really required some listening and some and, and some you know, some effective communication based on kind of intel gathering. Um, And, and kind of the other, the first way you described was solving the problem kind of solves an immediate problem or, 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 you know, maybe tamps down the symptoms as they affect me a little bit, but overall not, you know, there are, there are more whole, there, there are solutions and then there are solutions, right? Sure. I was a tactical approach versus a strategic. Yes, absolutely. So you just mentioned intel gathering. One of the other surprises you laid on me a long time ago now, maybe a year or so ago, is when you casually one day turned around and you were like, yeah, I was criminal intelligence when I was in the army. (laughs) Yeah. Sean Haynes surprise number 746. (laughs) So to the degree that you can share, um, what type of work did you do when you were in the criminal intelligence field? So, so my, so my training was as, as what's called an all source Intel analyst. There are lots of different, intelligence fields within the military. Uh, and I think you know, in some ways I chose the least interesting one, I think, because there's human intelligence where, where you know, you're actually out there interrogating people, right? There's you know, signal intelligence where you're, you're listening in on kind of intercepted communications, right? And, and you know, trans, uh, translating or analyzing. And then you know, there's the all source intel analysis, which is what, what I did where you kind of take all the work that everybody else has done and put it together and holistically kind of try to evaluate situations to make recommendations to leadership. Um, So that was my background. Um, So I got on orders on the Southwest border on, um, on a mission. And the first couple months I, um, boy, I was doing surveillance out in the desert. Right. So it'd be me and another guy, um, you know, in the, the conversational quality amongst the different people I ended up sitting in a truck all night with really varied. But what we would do is sit there from, from, you know, eight at night until eight in the morning, just with an infrared camera surveilling the desert to see if anybody was crossing right illegally. And, but a couple months in uh, I'll never forget. It was one of the happiest moments of my life up until that point, I got a call from my friend that I mentioned earlier, who was a, at that point, I think he was a Sergeant major who called me up and said, Hey, you know, Sean, pack your bags. You're leaving. I was in Deming, New Mexico, where kind of the most happening thing was Walmart. You're leaving and you're going to Las Cruces, which actually had a movie theater. Um, uh, and you're going to be working out of a Homeland security investigations office. And you're going to actually put your training to use because a, a position just opened up there. And I told them Sean Hayes is the man for you. So so for the vast majority of my time on active duty was working in a Homeland Security Investigations office as a criminal analyst, supporting um, the investigations of federal agents into human trafficking, um, 
narcotics trafficking, weapons trafficking cases. And so that was that was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. I really enjoyed that because I, I you know, I was helping support efforts that I thought were important, um, particularly the narco trafficking, the human trafficking stuff. Um, and just, you know, helping out, supporting with intelligence products, um, you know, the the agents who were out there in the field trying to trying to, uh, you know, solve bigger problems. Coming from my investigations background, I'm nerding out listening to that. That that sounds like fun. And honestly, for me too, building the puzzle was something I always enjoyed. So yeah, interviewing and interrogating people had its moments and could certainly be fun. But there was also fun in the chase, so to speak, like starting out with puzzle pieces jumbled all over the table and trying to figure out which ones start to connect. And all of a sudden you've got a picture. Maybe it was the picture you thought you would have. Maybe it's not a picture you thought you would have. It, it becomes a surprise over time, but I, I really enjoyed that piece of it for me. And again, I'm biased as I bring this up, the investing listening and the investigation or investigator mindset goes hand in hand maintaining a level of curiosity, turning over another rock, elevating your situational awareness, seeing threads that intertwine that other people might not recognize can, again, to the degree that you can share and generalities are completely acceptable based on where you were and what you were doing. Can you walk us through a time where you were working on investigating, putting the puzzle pieces together for somebody, supporting somebody else, and based on your situational awareness, was able to help create a picture that maybe somebody else had overlooked. So I, I, I have a good example of this, Mike, but it wasn't actually in the in the context of working with Homeland Security investigations. Okay. It was actually later on in my law career, actually okay. early in my law career. So uh, kind of another phase of my life I came to much later than most of my peers, but. Um, I was what's called a summer associate at a law firm. So in law school, you know, depending on what you want to do with your life, right, in the law, um, one thing that you can do in your summers, between, so law school is typically three years, you know, first, second, and third. And then the summers between your years of school, you, you look to get jobs that are connected to the law, right? And my first summer, I lucked into what's called a summer associate position with a law firm in Miami. Uh, that's where my wife was living and that's where we plan on settling. So I got the job because I could speak a couple Latin American languages. Um, and so we had this and you're not expected to do much as a summer associate, to be honest with you. Um, you know, you're expected to demonstrate minimal competency. And so I was confident. I I, I actually, I, to be honest with you, I wasn't that competent. I could I could demonstrate minimal competency. And I was working on like transactions, like deals and I just felt lost at sea, man. I had no idea what I was doing, which is honestly to be expected because law school is particularly the first year of law school doesn't prepare you. But then one day we had this situation. I had this boss, another one of the best bosses I ever had, who had a client that was a um, kind of a public pension fund in Latin America that had been, that had gotten what we thought or what he thought was scammed by this um by this investment opportunity, right? And without getting into the details, just this, you know, these these people had gone to sell this, you know, because it's a pension fund and the people who manage the fund need to take the money that's paid into it and invest it, right? And try to get the best return for their pensioners. Um, and so they had kind of been scammed on these viatical, um, these viatical contracts, which sounded super morbid to me, but what it is, is you buy someone's life insurance policy, 
and you start paying the premiums on it. And when that person dies, then you collect, right? You collect on, on the payout. And so the reason it sounds morbid is really your rate of return increases substantially if they die the day after you buy the policy, right? So you're you're sitting there hoping, like, I've got this fiduciary responsibility to my pensioners to increase the rate of return on their money. And in order to do that, I I really need these people to die as quickly as possible. Right. So, but but I mean it's legit, you know, that it's something that that exists in the world, right? But so they had kind of been, we suspected that they had been scammed by being sold policies. So when they would buy the policies, they would get from from the company that was that was kind of facilitating the transaction, um, just these information sheets that said, you know, this this person, you don't know the person's name, right? But this person sold you this policy. Um, and this is their this is kind of like their medical situation. This is their health situation. This is their expected their life expectancy based on, you know, examinations by medical professionals, right? And so you base like, okay, well, this is how much it's going to cost me. We think they're going to die about then. So this is kind of what my rate of return should be. I'll give you a bunch of details that kind of don't matter. But the point is, we thought that they had been scammed, right? And so one day, I didn't have much to do. And the boss comes in with two boxes full of documents from this whole thing. And he says, hey, take a look at this, see what you can figure out. You know, one of your colleagues has already looked, says there's nothing there, but you seem like you don't have anything to do. So take a look. And I felt like I have been looking at like loan agreements and all this stuff. And like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but this investigation stuff, I kind of feel like I know. And I don't know if it's been your experience in doing investigations, Mike, and you have way, way more experience than I do, but like, there's kind of a dog on a bone mentality I get when I start doing that kind of, that kind of thing. And so I dug in and I started seeing in these things in these documents that didn't really make sense to me, right? That, but so, you know, my colleague who didn't have investigations background and didn't have that same mentality was like, yeah, everything looks good to me. I mean, I don't know. And I started to see like stuff like, wait, hold on. If you look at this, it looks like the company took a loan out on this policy. So if they take a loan, if they took a loan out and that loan was still outstanding when the person died, then that loan has to be paid back before our client gets their payout, right? So that reduces. And why were they doing that? Or other, I saw papers that looked like they had been like copied and then recopied. Like it looked like, like literally a piece of paper had been taped over part of this document and then copied. So you couldn't see it. Right. But just very subtle. And I started to, I found like maybe a couple dozen documents that seemed fishy to me. Um, And it was just because I had that, like, let's see what looks funky. And let's like, once we've determined what looks a little off, how do those pieces fit together um, to paint a picture of what's going on here? And lo and behold, like I, I ended up Actually, so it's funny, the summer associateship is usually about eight weeks and they extended me for an additional four weeks, which was awesome for me because it was just like, I got to continue working on the stuff that was interesting um, and help out. And and kind of what I did with that mentality formed the basis of us going to that company and saying, hey, look, we know what you did. We have this, 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 and this piece of evidence. Now, whether that would have held up in court, debatable, but it at least sufficiently you know, it let them know we knew to the extent that we managed to work out a settlement that that nice. that worked out in the favor of our clients. So, 
that kind of mentality about wanting to look like dig deeper, take a more critical eye and then see how those pieces fit together um, was exactly what happened in that experience. And it really kind of set me up for later success because it, 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 I mean, I lucked into it, right. Cause I could have spent the whole summer looking at loan documents, which I had no real, you know, skill or talent for. Right. But this opportunity kind of fell on my lap and by, being a dog on a bone and being very tenacious and trying to see how the pieces fit together really helped, you know, helped me help our client and help me, you know, establish a reputation. Yeah. Well, you might've lucked into the opportunity and quite honestly, how many opportunities in life do we all luck into, but you didn't luck into the mindset, the approach, the fascination, the skills that you brought to create a solution that somebody else already failed on. Yeah. So not only did you find, isolate the problem, back it with evidence and put, the, put your firm in a situation to take care of your client, but you did it on the back of somebody else. I was like, nah, dude, it's cool. Yeah. So I'm sure that only increases the perception of how well you did. And I honestly believe, again, I'm biased. I honestly believe that that investigator mindset, something doesn't look right. Let me find out why something doesn't make sense. Let me ask a little, let me, let me dig a little bit deeper. You know, I'm not so sure that 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 rings true, but I'm going to be patient and I'm going to ask a different way in a few more minutes. So many people accept what they hear at face value. They don't care. They don't dig in. Everything's fine. But that patient curiosity mixed in with that tenacious, you know, I'm going to figure this out. I feel like people who develop that skill set over time become much more successful, much more aware, achieve and become aware of things that other people just don't Yeah, because they lack that. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that same approach to really, because investigating is akin to learning. What can I teach myself? It's the overlap there is significant. Mm -hmm. You can speak, am I right? Five languages? To, to some degree of fluency, five languages. Yeah. So with the few minutes that we've got left, walk me through, I know you went to school for Latin American studies. And so I've got a, a little bit of the background, the sign language I'm assuming is one from your work previously that you mentioned your social work. Yep. Um, but walk me through the process. We'll, we'll put English to the side because to whatever degree you and I can speak English, that one's self-explanatory, <laughs> but for the other four, Walk me through the process of what it was like to learn those languages. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, the impetus. So the first language I learned to speak uh, other than you know, I learned sign language on the job. Right. Um, and so that was I mean, I never really had formal classes. It was it was really there was one particular client. And it's funny because we shared a birthday. So we felt like we had this really special connection. Um, and she was very patient in teaching me sign language so I could communicate with her which in turn helped me communicate with a lot of other people. Um, Spanish I came to in my mid-20s because I had married a woman from Argentina. Um, and she was living in Argentina. She moved to the United States to live with me after we, after we got engaged. And her family didn't speak English, right? And so I just remember at some point thinking, her dad cannot communicate with the young man that his daughter has moved to the other side of the world to live with. And I didn't feel good about that at all. And I said, this guy's in his fifties. It's not incumbent upon him to learn English. It's on me to kind of learn Spanish so he can feel, you know, comfortable that, that, uh, that, that, you know, whatever. Um, but it was interesting because 
because to learn, I mean, you know, everybody says, right, learning languages as a kid is much easier. You're just a sponge for that stuff, right? And so for me, I mean, I think I took to it a little more naturally as an adult than a lot of other adults do. Because one, I was really motivated. Two, I was really interested in the puzzle of grammar, right? So I wanted to know that. I didn't just want to learn phrases. I didn't want to just learn how to ask where the bathroom was and order a beer. I wanted to be able to be creative with a language and, and be as fluent as as I am in my in, in English, right? To really be able to have conversations. But the thing that really sticks out in my mind, Mike, and you'll probably, you know, you'll almost certainly be able to relate to this, is when you're learning a foreign language, like when we're listening to each other, and this, I mean, I'll cop to it. This still happens to me on work calls that I don't have to really be plugged in. It's very easy to have your attention divided between the conversation you're having and some other problem, like right now at this very moment, I've got an ant infestation in my house that is kind of driving me nuts. And I've got an exterminator coming today. Um, I'm really engaged in my discussion with you right now because it's really interesting to me, right? right. Um, as are all my discussions I have with you. But like if I were on a work call that I really kind of didn't have to be listening into, like like 10% of my, my focus is going to be on that call and about 90% is going to be on the other problems I have right now, despite my best attempts to, to try, because I do consciously try to find myself focusing in on the conversation at hand, because I, it's just, it's the right thing to do. And it's going to make me more effective at my job, right? But with learning a foreign language, you have to shut off that external noise, because you're listening to somebody who sounds like they're speaking a million miles an hour in a language you don't understand, you really have to focus in your attention 100% or you're going to miss stuff and you start to miss stuff. Like the whole, the whole conversation is kind of blown because you're three sentences behind and they've already moved on. And, and so it was the first time in my life, I really learned the value of devoting, you know, as near to hundred percent attention as you can to communication, because otherwise it just wasn't going to happen. Right. Like you can kind of fake your way through certain stuff and you're not going to get optimal outcomes but with foreign language learning, man, you have, especially at the beginning, you have to concentrate or it's just not going to happen for you. So that was really like the big thing for me was like, wow, I can't be even 1% tuned into this background stuff that's going through my mind. I have to try to focus as much as I possibly can on the, on the interaction I'm having with this person at this time or else it's, it's going to be completely useless to me. So that was kind of a big like takeaway from me learning language. Cause you can apply that like beyond that context. For sure. um, and, for sure. um, but for me, it was like that quieting everything else going on in my mind to focus on, on kind of the conversation I'm having with that person. So I can like tread water enough to be able to maintain that conversation. Love it. So you've walked us through, we'll put English aside, sign language, Mm -hmm. Thank goodness for a patient teacher and the, the need and opportunity to learn Spanish. That leaves us with two more. Yeah. So Portuguese, uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's, I don't want to say it's cheat cheating, but Portuguese is so similar to Spanish. I mean, there are va there are huge differences that in some ways, if you're a native Sp Spanish speaker, it's harder to speak Portuguese because things Things So when you're learning Spanish, like there are some grammatical structures that are much different from English and you have to learn how they work. Right. And you have to understand. And then you go to learn Portuguese and the languages are so similar. You figure everything's going to work the same way in Spanish and Portuguese and they don't. Right. So those structures that you've kind of internalized in Spanish, they don't serve you in Portuguese. So there are some ways in which it's tougher, but overall, it's just kind of easier to learn Portuguese. And I was like, yeah, 
I already learned, I already speak Spanish. Why not try to learn Portuguese? So I did take a couple courses in Portuguese when I was in college. Um, and then I, so, you know, uh, I've, 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 you know, the wonderful woman from Argentina that I, that I married, we, we later divorced and I'm now married to a Brazilian. Um, so her native language is Portuguese and I, I'm lazy with it, Mike. I'm lazy with it. Uh, I think when you, when you saw me interpreting, for the jujitsu instructor that day, that was probably the most Portuguese I had spoken in years. Um, but just listening to it and taking advantage of opportunities here and there has, has made me fairly fluent in Portuguese. Um, and it was awesome, right? Like when you do jujitsu, it's great to be able to speak Portuguese because we do Brazilian jujitsu. So a lot of the broader jujitsu community is Brazilians. I mean, I just did a tournament, um, last week, like a big international tournament that's run by Brazilians. So it's just fun to be able to get out there and say, you know, say a few words to the ref to the Brazilian referee in Portuguese or the people weighing you in. It's just like I like to think it maybe gives me a little bit of an edge, you know, but but if nothing else, it it broadens and enriches my experience. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it's cool. Like people recognize look, man, I'm a I'm a white boy from the wilds of northern Maine. You know, people don't expect like the day you didn't expect it from me. Like I show up and I'm weighing in uh, with this Brazilian guy looking at the scale and he's not expecting me to pop off in Portuguese to him. But when you do it kind of like it kind of helps you make connections with people. Sure. Right. Because it's a surprise. Like, oh, wow. This guy speaks Portuguese like his Portuguese probably isn't that good. But here's an American who's taken the initiative to learn. And, and, and you know, that's just like it opens doors for you. Right. And that's never my goal is like, I'm going to, you know, try to like elbow my way in to gain some kind of an advantage because I speak the language, but you know, that's kind of a natural consequence is people want to get to know you and people want to yeah. like, and so it's cool. And then Italian also a romance language, similar enough to Spanish and Portuguese that I thought it would be easy to learn. And it was, um, and in my law school, they let us take up to four credits outside the law school and I was like, oh, dude, I'm, I'm going to take some language classes and if I can do it. So I took some Italian classes and, and I took a trip to Italy. And and uh, it's funny with Italian, especially like people are happy that you can speak there, but they're like, why did you learn Italian? Right. <laughs> Nobody except Italians speak Italian. And it was just like, yeah, it's a cool language. You know, I like to be able to go to a place and communicate um, in the native language of the place. So that was kind of the, the impetus there, but also again, like similar enough in, in, in its roots to Spanish and Portuguese that it was kind of a, you know, it's, it's certainly easier for me to pick up than if I had tried Mandarin Chinese at that point. I, yeah. I can, can only imagine. Well, that to me, that's impressive, man. And, and I hear you, what you're saying for being able to speak a native language, a very close friend of mine that I grew up with has lived in Germany for 20 years now. He was first generation born in the States and I've gone over to visit him several times. And on multiple occasions, I've been out. There was one particular occasion where there was a group of 14 of us that went out and I was the only like purebred American. Jason had, had lived here, but you know, speaks fluent German and his whole life he spoke fluent German. So I was literally the only person in the group that could speak one language. And when we were in Munich, every, you can get an English menu anywhere. It's fine. And most people can servicely speak English. So there's no problem. But as soon as we got out in the countryside, mm -hmm. you know, here I am like, hey, dude, can you read this menu for me? And, you know, I can start picking out the common meals pretty quickly. But so you're right. It's embarrassing and certainly causes me to reflect on opportunities that I may have had and opportunities you know, as I raise my son to, to hopefully instill that type of skill. 
But I'm surprised, man. And by the way, knowing Paula, you made the right choice upgrading your wife. So I just want to make sure <laughs> that that's, that's on tape for everybody to hear. Um, but I'm surprised with her in the house that you're not speaking Portuguese more often. Dude, she, she her English is so good. You know, I like it's native. It's native English. It's almost completely without. I'm kind of bummed that she's lost that Brazilian lilt to her English, you know, that kind of sing songy up and down. But I mean. When we met, I spoke no, I spoke very limited Portuguese and she spoke perfect English. So it just like from a pure efficiency standpoint, it made more sense. I mean, she would have been happy to kind of help me, but it's just that we naturally fall into the rhythm of speaking English because it's just easier. Right. And so it's funny, we'll get criticism because our kids don't speak Portuguese. And they're like, why don't they? We Like, I know this couple um, and their kids speak English and Spanish. And it's like, yeah, but their parents are both Mexican. So they speak Spanish at home, right? Uh, because their parents are both Mexican native Spanish speakers here. We've got a situation where like my Portuguese skills fall so short of Paula's English skills. Like they're good. Like, don't get me wrong. They're good. And I'm going to Brazil next in a couple of weeks. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to be kind of forced to speak Portuguese and, and, and push myself. But she just like her English is so good. It's just easier. Right. We, we, we often fall. In, I'm not proud to say it, but we often fall into those patterns where, you know, we just kind of do what's easiest for us. Yeah. And so that's why I don't take advantage at home. Paula would be more than willing. You know, it's all on me um, to kind of like force myself. Uh, but that's that's kind of my somewhat cop out explanation of why I'm not speaking more Portuguese at home. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll let you, I'll let you off the hook with that. Thanks. One. I appreciate it. So. There's a, there's one question that I've wanted to ask the entire time, and we've been talking for 55 minutes or so now, and I really do appreciate all your time and your insight and your stories and your experiences, and you kind of answered it before in a way that impressed me, but just in case you've got something else, I'll, I'll ask this anyway. As you've learned five different languages and as you've communicated with people in all five of them, so to back this up, you've learned them. You've communicated with them and to some degree you've taught them i don't know about italian but to some degree you've taught them along the way as well what has the process of immersing yourself in five different languages taught you about listening and communicating to everybody else it's a, it's a really interesting question i mean part of it is just kind of that overarching lesson of really tuning in right um part of it is kind of you know, and I kind of had this, I guess, but kind of that overarching understanding that we all have wants and needs, right? Um, and to be able to communicate and understand those wants and needs in foreign languages has been has been interesting, right? If I'm talking to a Peruvian, their background is different, their culture is different, but at the end of the day, we're all people, right? And it's it's you know it's important to understand that, and 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 um, you know it's just surprising how even in the context of vast cultural differences, there are just certain human elements that are common to us all. Um, but, but I guess, um, I guess at, at the end of the day, it's just the importance of listening. Right. Uh, it, and it just drove the whole, it drove the point home much more when I was trying, when I was having to listen in a foreign language, because in English, it's easy, right. You grow up speaking it. It's, well, we say it's easy, but sometimes it's not easy to really um, listen with intention that much. Oh, right. So, yeah, that I, I just like to think that I became a better listener with intention in English based on the fact that that I had to really push myself to do it in so many foreign languages. I think that's 
kind of the biggest takeaway. I know it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a lot of the same answer I gave before, but I think that's probably, that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing um, is listening with intention and understanding that no matter what language you're communicating in um, people value, people do value when you listen to them. You know what I mean? And people do value communication. Like, again, people are often surprised when they see my, you know, Northern white Yankee, behind be able to open up and speak to them in that language and that just like it sparks something that helps that helps make human connections that I otherwise might not be able to make and that's just such a huge benefit to me and I, and I I've, I've reaped the rewards of of kind of feeling like I have richer experiences and and a more diverse group of people to to make friends with based on that Amen. And so many good points that you made, and I'm just trying to stay out of your way as you make them. But when you surprise people, the impact, well, the impact of whatever you're doing is increased maybe tenfold with the fact that you're surprising them when you do it. Like if somebody expected you to speak Italian, oh yeah, he speaks Italian. Wait, he speaks Italian. He can communicate with me on my level. He cares enough about me that he respects me enough to talk to me in my language. Like those things make such a big difference. You're hundred percent right. We're not wired to be good listeners. It is way harder than the average person posting on LinkedIn would like to have us believe <laughs> to fully engage and listen to somebody else and to be invested in that conversation. And when you've been in situations where you've been forced to, and now it becomes learned, like operationally conditioned behavior, the mm -hmm. advantages it creates there. And for me, just listening to the pieces of your story that you took the time to share with us today, that social worker approach, like actually valuing other people's times and experiences enough to listen, your own curiosity and dedication to learning, the situations you put yourself in, the way you can build those puzzles. It's all really impressive, man. And there's a whole lot to learn. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Oh. I'm going to be picking your brain off camera to come, man. I mean, you, you spark some new questions for sure, but I know your time's limited today. So I really appreciate you coming on with us. Thank you very, very much. I, I look forward to obviously continuing our friendship, but continuing to learn from you as well. So thank you. Oh, Mike, right back at you, man. I, 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 I you know, always a pleasure to speak with you in any circumstances. And I can't tell you how much that, that, uh, you know, developing a friendship with you, reading your book. I mean, I know we didn't talk about it, but I mean, I just would, I'll be honest with you. You know, at first it was like a guy at jujitsu told me he wrote a book, like, oh, let's check it out. I, I, my expectations, I didn't know you that well at that point. Right. True, so very my true. expectations were, were, we'll say they were, they were, um, moderated, right? I appreciate your community service approach to buying a book from me. Thank you very much. <laughs> but when I opened it, I was like, oh my gosh, man, this, this, it's again, I'm like, it's going to sound like I'm trying to shill for you at this point. I'm really not. But when I opened the book and I started to read it, I was just very like talking about surprise, right? I was very surprised at how, like how well written it was for one thing, but just like the really interesting eye-opening points that you made about listening stuff that I had kind of thought of, but not in as in as kind of like processed a way and 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 you know developed a way as as you put it I, I was always impressed so all that to say right back at you always a pleasure to talk with you look forward to you know future conversations about this or or anything else but i you know thanks for having me on it's it's been a lot of fun well, thank you, man. And uh, we'll put some time in between it, but we'll come back on. We'll do it again because I feel like there's there's a lot more that we could unpack here. 
Uh, uh, anytime you want, man. Very, very good talking with you, Mike. All right, man. Stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. Later, man. Bye. Once again, thank you, Sean. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us, share all of your experiences and insights. I hope all of you learned something from Sean and took something away from that conversation. What a perspective from that diverse career, from supporting children and adults with disabilities to his role in the army, not just his actual role, but also serving as a mentor to others because he was a little bit older when he joined to what he's doing now in his legal career. So what it takes to be able to become fluent in five languages and connect with those people from those cultures and do it so well, transition from one to the other, just Sean is somebody who really is a masterful communicator. And Sean, thank you for taking the time to join us and thank everybody for watching the conversation. Of course, we've got to thank our sponsors, Humantel. Check out humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off the industry leading online training. If you've ever been interested in what is somebody likely thinking, feeling, experiencing, is their emotions changes, their facial expressions changes, their behavior changes, Humantel.com is a wonderful place to start your training, to start understanding what people might be thinking in the context of any given conversation. Can't recommend their training enough. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com. Please head over there and check out their ever-growing list of resources, podcasts, videos, articles, all emotional intelligence, everything you need to know and learn to grow that skill set over there. And of course, please check out certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers, especially if you're a professional interviewer. They are solely dedicated to putting together the content, putting on events, constantly giving professional interviewers the tools and resources they need to consistently conduct morally, legally, and any successful investigative interviews. Really, really happy to be associated with that group as well. Thank you all so much. Thank you again for joining us. Please stay safe. Take care of each other. I look forward to seeing you all again on the next one. Thank you.